0: Sam do you have 857 oh you do good to know well good morning want to invite you to come on in and we'll start our Sunday school class there are handouts available to you and um, glad you're here this morning so glad you're here this morning October is what historians refer to Reformation month. And in particular, October 31st, that is the historical day where Martin Luther tacked his 95 thesis to the door of Wittenberg. October 31st, 1517. So let me ask you, how many years ago was that? Over 500, good, I know, I know, <laughs> 505 years. So glad you're here. I just feel very privileged. I'm just thankful to the Lord for this opportunity. It has been wonderful to look and to hear godly men reflect on the history of um, the Reformation. I would like to bring a few, uh, a few resources um, to mind. Um, Ligonier Ministries has wonderful, wonderful uh, resources available. Um, you can listen to them, you can read them. But Ligonier Ministries is one um, Church History Magazine. If you don't have the magazine personally, physically, you can actually go online. Church History Magazine. You can actually get the PDF and look look through wonderful, wonderful resources about the Reformation. Dr. Professor Steve Lawson has a, a lot of wonderful, wonderful things. So the list can go on and on and on, but there's a lot uh, There's a lot of great resources about the Reformation. So I'm thankful to the Lord for allowing me this opportunity. I wanna thank Craig um, for giving me a couple weeks here. This week and next week, we're gonna look at the Reformation and Martin Luther. So we'll go as far as we can today, and then next week we'll, We'll finish up if you notice your handout I mean this is basically our trail this is basically our track together and if you look at Roman numeral number one the Reformation and our legacy that's where we're gonna go Roman numeral number two you see why was the Reformation so important number three is Martin Luther the early years and then number four which is very exciting here I stand declares Martin Luther So let's begin this morning as we look at the Reformation and Martin Luther. He was born in 1483, and he died 1546. How old does that make him? 63, (laughs) sorry. And by the way, this this is interactive. This is interactive. Um, It's really good if you have questions. Feel free to stop me. I know where I'm going, so I'm going. But please feel free to stop me. Slow me down, stop me, ask your questions, please ask your questions. So Martin Luther, the Reformation and Martin Luther, one, one person asked me um, it, within the last couple of days, are we gonna go through the 95 thesis? No. And the reason is I actually was looking at those and very interested in those, but you know, Martin Luther wrote the 95 thesis when he was a non-Christian. He was saved within a year or two after he actually nailed that to the wall. But at the time he wrote it, it was in response to the indulgences practice. And we're going to get into that a little bit. But we're not going to really address the 95 Thesis um, verbatim. There's 95 of them. And he was responding to the indulgence practices. And so I would recommend looking at those, and they're very interesting. But the Reformation and Martin Luther. So the Reformation and our legacy, it would be naive for anybody to think that The church started in the 21st century or the 20th century. It would be naive to think that. We're a part of a legacy of faithful Christians who passed on the gospel of Christ. In the 1600, with Martin Luther, he was, um, well, in the 1600, when Martin Luther was making his stand, it was one of the greatest back to the Bible movements that there was. It it was really um, grace to you. Um, And there's a little play on words there. Back to the Bible and grace to you are both radio programs that you can listen to. The Roman Catholic Church offered no grace at all. During a thousand year period, the Roman Catholic Church reigned. But the 1600s, this uh, Professor Steve Lawson, he says that the reformers were men who God used to light a match, to, uh, to light a match, to start the fuse, to ignite the explosion of the reformation. And so John, John Wycliffe, he was in the uh, 1400s. He was a pre-reformer, John Wycliffe, and you're gonna wanna remember his name. John Huss, who was in the modern day Czech Republic he was a pre-reformer, he was in the 14th century, and then Martin Luther, he was actually a German reformer, and we're gonna talk a little bit more about that, but um, John Calvin, these were some of the men of the Reformation, Um, part of our legacy as Christians. John Calvin, a Geneva reformer, William Tyndale, an English reformer, John Knox, a Scottish reformer, Ulrich uh, Zwingli, a Swiss reformer, and there were many, many, many more. We're only specifically looking at Martin Luther and the reformers because it's in October and on October 31st, it was Martin Luther who nailed that 95 thesis to the wall. And historians do contribute that, that event right there as the explosion and the beginning of the reformation. And so interestingly enough, so Lawson, Steve Lawson, he said, we stand downstream from these men. Every Christian today benefits from these men and how God used them in the Reformation history. These men stood firm and courageous as they passed on a bloody baton to the next generations. And so that's why it's important for us to understand our legacy. So the men of the Reformation, I wanna just point this out, the men of the Reformation. Martin Luther, he stood on the shoulders of John Huss. John Huss stood on the shoulders of John Wycliffe, and so as many men as there are, and we could study a lot of them, just like we mentioned, John Calvin, and we talked about William Tyndale, and John Knox, and Ulrich Zwingli, there, and there are many, many more in the Reformation. I want to just point out, I just want to point out these three men because there's a link that they had to each other. Martin Luther stood on the shoulders of John Huss, Huss stood on the shoulders of Wycliffe. It was John Wycliffe in the 14th century, it was, uh, uh, pardon me, it was John Wycliffe in the 14th century, it was John Huss in the 15th century, and Martin Luther in the 16th century. John Wycliffe was a pre reformer of the 14th century. And John Wycliffe was a pre-reformer who lived a century before John Huss. Wycliffe's, maybe some of us remember it by Wycliffe's Bible, um, Wycliffe's translations. I mean, if I were to ask, and you don't have to, raise your hand about who's heard of Wycliffe Bible translations. So it's very common, even today. So John Wycliffe, the pre-reformer, um, he, uh, uh, he was a writer, um, he was a biblical scholar, A theologian um, and he drew the interest of John Huss who Huss lived a century later he drew the attention of John Huss and um, Wycliffe thought Wycliffe's thought was to place more emphasis on the Bible now keep in mind we're gonna get there but there was a thousand year reign of the Roman Catholic Church and so Wycliffe thought his thought was to place more emphasis of the Bible hello right I mean that that would be good but the catholic church had subverted all the authority and the power from the bible and placed it on themselves and so for Wycliffe to have these kind of thoughts it was amazing so Wycliffe was saying we need to have more emphasis on the bible to promote moral reform of the clergy and the catholic church and the pope in general so a hundred years later here's John Huss He became increasingly, increasingly interested in the writings of John Wycliffe. And in fact, he himself started to trust scripture more and more and more because of Huss's writing, uh, because of Wycliffe's writing 100 years before that. So Huss was influenced. John Huss was influenced in the the 15th century by Wycliffe and um, once confirmed. Um, Huss was influenced by Wycliffe and once confirmed. He desired to hold and believe and assert whatever is contained in scripture as long as I have breath in me. This was John Huss, being inspired by the words of John Wycliffe and being inspired by scripture and scripture alone. And so, Huss preached key reformation themes. Now remember, Huss is a pre-reformer. 100 years before that, a lone voice in the wilderness. Preaching about Reformation, Reformation, Reformation. So Wycliffe was important in the 14th century, passing that on to John Huss in the 15th century. And so here we have uh, Huss preaching key reform themes like, like uh, hostility. Huss was hostile to indulgences a century before Luther drew up the 95 thesis. So the reformers looked to Huss's life in particular, his steadfast commitment in the face of the Catholic Church, in the face of their domineering, in the face of their cunning brutality. In fact, John Huss was eventually burned at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church for his reformed views. Huss was committed, he was a committed Christian, and he prayed, Lord Jesus, it is for thee that I have patiently endured this crucial death or this cruel death. I pray thee to have mercy on my enemies. And so when Martin Luther, when he heard these, when he heard these things, Martin Luther was impacted by the life of John Huss. And early in his monastery, his 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 monastic career, Martin Luther was a monk. Martin Luther, he rummaged, he rummaged through a a stack of books in the library, and he happened to come across a volume of sermons by John Huss. And he started to read what, ha- what Huss had to say, and he was overwhelmed with astonishment. So much so that Luther later wrote, I could not understand for what caused they had to burn such a great man who explained the scriptures with so much gravity and skill. Amazing. And so we have the pre-reformers, Wycliffe and Huss, who would become heroes to Luther and many other reformers. So I hope you're catching that. Let me just pause right here for one second and ask, are we catching that? The importance of the Reformation and our legacy. We We stand with men. We stand downstream from them. We benefit from their courageous acts for Christ and to stand on the authority of the Bible. So, any questions, any comments? All right. Well, if you look in your outline, historians say the Protestant Reformation started 1517. So historians say 1517, and and, and specifically October 31st, right, where in our country, in America, we celebrate Halloween, the reformers They were celebrating Reformation Day. Historians say that the Protestant Reformation started October 31st, 1517. Martin Luther would have had no clue at what he was doing with the 95 Thesis. He was a monk in the monastery, completely frustrated about things about the indulgences and many other perversions and many other twisted and deformed things that were going on within the Catholic Church. And Martin Luther, he was all about debate questions and debate questions and scripture questions and scripture in fact he actually wrote a catechism and during this time remember martin luther is the late or the early early 1500s we just talked about the heidelberg catechism that was written in 1553 1556 because the question and the scripture. The question in the scripture, that was a good habit that society was starting to get into. Martin Luther didn't invent that, invent that literary technique, but he definitely popularized it. Question scripture, question scripture. And so that's why what Martin Luther was doing with the 95 thesis, he was actually out of frustration trying to have an open debate about the practice of indulgences so that's why historians are saying October 31st 1517 Luther was lighting a fuse he had no idea about the explosion that was about to come and so the tribute to Martin Luther nailing that 95 thesis to the castle door at Wittenberg Germany many many most say that that is the start of the Reformation he was approximately 34 years old when he did this he was born in 1483. Remember, this is 1517. So Martin Luther had developed great conviction against the practice of indulgences. Indulgences is the practice of paying a fee and performing a religious act to liberate your loved ones from what the Catholic Church had invented, purgatory. Let me make sure you're clear on an indulgence. An indulgence is when you pay a fee, and you perform an act, and your hope is is to get that relative out of purgatory. That is a fiction that the Catholic Church put upon society for a thousand years and even more. We hear the Catholic Church teaching purgatory. Purgatory is a fictional place that the that the Catholic Church had made up and inflicted upon the people. There is no, there is no such a place in Scripture. There is no such a place, and there is, there are no practices such as paying to be forgiven, or not only paying, but performing an act. You're going to hear about Martin Luther as he was climbing the Holy Stairs in Rome, and at the very top he was saying, is this even true? He climbed these Holy Stairs in Rome, and we'll, we'll get there either today or next week, but it is nowhere found in the Bible. Luther Luther's personal experience with with was indul, with his indulgences. He did. He made a, a trip seven years earlier, 1510, to Rome. He was 27, and his religious acts when he was climbing these holy stairs to release his grandfather from purgatory. You have to kiss. You have to kiss the stairs, and then as you're kissing the stairs, uh, repeat the Lord's prayer. Go up the next step on your knees. You're kneeing down, you're on these steps, you're kissing the steps, you're saying the Lord's Prayer, you're going to the next step. And these steps, I don't know how many there are, but these are, in fact, you can go to Rome even today and see these steps that are there. And I'm saying there are many, many, many steps. You're kissing it, you're saying the Lord's Prayer, when you get to the top, you're hoping that this is paid enough for your loved one to be released from purgatory. Luther's conviction, his convictions about the indulgences grew more and more. And that's what caused his actions in 1517. What, what really put him over the top in 1517 was Johann Tetzel. Johann Tetzel was a carn artist, he was a fraud and he was dispatched, dispatched from the Roman Catholic Church to come, into, to come into a society. And in fact, what, what Martin Luther was over the top about was, Johann Tetzel was coming into Martin Luther's hometown. Johann Tetzel would come into the hometown. He would gather everybody together and he would sell indulgences for the Roman Catholic Church so they could raise money. And as Steve Lawson, I can hear his, I can hear his voice in my head. Oh, pray tell to raise money, to raise more money. That's what they were doing to build more buildings. Rome is beautiful. In fact, you, you see it today. And it's benefited from their trickeries to build more buildings, to have more precipice, even to establish and redo the Pope's home. Martin Luther was over the top when Johann Tetzel came into his hometown selling indulgences. He was over the top. And what Johann Tetzel would do is he would peel, he would, he would appeal to. To those who remember, education was not given to the lowborn. Education was not available. And so these are people that are poor, uneducated. The very little money that they had, Johann Tetzel was, was more than willing to vacuum it from their pockets. And so Martin Luther was completely over the top when Johann Tetzel came into his society. Martin Luther, in fact, the Pope had once said about Martin Luther, he said, we have a boar loose in our vineyard. This is what the Pope said about Martin Luther. He was a dog on a bone. And when God had saved him, and Martin Luther understood the authority of Scripture and understood the gospel, can you imagine? There was not one ounce of grace given by the Catholic Church. And so when Martin Luther, when his eyes were made open, can you imagine the grace that Martin Luther experienced and how he understood the importance of sola scriptura. Can you imagine that? Scripture alone, scripture alone. And so Martin Luther would have no idea again as he was responding to Johann Tetzel, October 31st 1517 October 31st, um, uh, when he nailed the thesis to the wall. So, Let's take a pause for one second and ask any questions, any comments. Don't mind questions. All right. Don't mind moving on either. I hope you're finding this interesting. Why was the Reformation so important? Understanding the reforming, the deforming, and the reforming of Christ's church. Let me say that again. What's important under this section is understanding the forming, deforming, and reforming of Christ's church let me just start out by saying the forming of Christ's church the importance of the first century i mean when you look at this at the 16th century and that's when the reformation was starting i want you to be clear on this why was the reformation so important it goes back to the first century christ has been incarnate god incarnate god is coming to man and in the first century we see this christ has come and he's imparting himself christ is coming and he's dying for sin he fulf- He fulfills the scriptures by keeping the law perfectly. He he proactively then dies on the cross for our sins. And so then we see him being killed. We see him being buried. And then we see him rising from the dead. The first century was absolutely important for the reforming of the church. And then as the apostles waited in Jerusalem, the spirit of God came upon them. And if you read the book of Acts, you're going to notice that is the history of the acts of the Spirit of God forming Christ's church. The book of Acts, you can read it and you can see how the Spirit of God had formed Christ's church. So Christ is building his church in the first century and he's passing his words on to the apostles. And so we see here, the apostles were given the authority of not only his message, but the authority of Christ, but the authority of Christ in itself. To confirm and to testify of all these facts about Jesus Christ so the first century is completely important for us to understand about the forming of Christ's church the first century I don't know if I put B on your outline I don't think I did but I was just kind of giving you a map um, to follow along here but the first century truth Jesus is the head of the church not the pope so i want you to understand here in the first century jesus is the head of the church he he himself proclaimed it the apostles uh, confirmed it um, not the pope and that's where the rub is in colossians chapter 1 verse 17 and 18 paul is confirming to those christians in Colossae, christ is the head of the church in fact in verse 18 he says and he is the head of the body the church and be clear on this not the pope and that's the rub back in in the 16th century so we're still looking at the first century uh, ref- the first century forming of the church one other concept to understand clearly about the first century is jesus gave authority to his apostles. jesus gave authority to the apostles not the pope and so when you look at john chapter 13 verse 20 when you look at john chapter 13 verse 20 it is the night before jesus is crucified it's that night, and Jesus is spending that last night with his 12 disciples. Of course, Judas, being one of them, has left now. Judas is going to go betray Christ. So Christ is now with his 11, and Christ knows the next morning he'll be crucified. He'll be put to death for the sins of his elect. And so, in the meantime, as he's showing them, as he's showing these 11 servant leadership by washing their feet, and he's giving them this message, here's what he says in John 13 20. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he's speaking to these 11, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me, not the Pope or the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church over time would work to subvert the Bible and would declare the Pope as having final authority. Another concept, not just Jesus being the head, and not just and not just the apostles having authority, but they would but but another forming of the church was the Bible having a divine nature and the final authority. And we hear that from Peter. The Bible has defined, uh, divine nature and final authority and not the Pope. And if you look at Catholic Catholicism, this is what they teach. When you have final authority about what the Word of God says, that's the Pope's job. But the Bible never gives inerrancy to the Pope. The Bible is inerrant. The Bible never gives, by the way, inerrancy to any man. The Bible's inerrant, not man. The Bible is inerrant, not man. So the Bible has a divine nature and final authority. So Peter, and, and in fact when you and we've covered these verses not, not even too long ago in Sunday school. Second Peter chapter one, verse, verse 19 through 21. And I, I won't take time to read. To read it all but when you look here uh, the bible has a divine nature in fact um, in verse 21 he says for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from god as they were carried along by the holy spirit it was nothing about man god worked in man and produced his inspired infallible indestructible word of god and so the Bible has a divine nature and the final authority. When you look at 2 Peter chapter 3, here they, here's this issue of Christ's second coming in the future. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses one and two, Christ is coming. And here's this biblical issue of doctrine. And so what Peter is doing here, you notice, and we covered this not too long ago. This is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the Holy Prophets, that's the Old Testament, and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. That's the entire New Testament. What's being established here is who has the authority. And so over time, the Roman Catholic Church, the Catholic Church would work hard to undermine the authority of scripture and uphold all authority under the Pope. And so history would show the importance of the first century forming, the first century forming the church. And so now let's look at a moment of deforming the church. I want you to get a concept of this. The first century was really important to graph so you understand the 16th century of the Reformation and why that explosion happened. The deforming of the church, the Catholic church dominated from 1600 AD to 1600, I'm sorry, 600 600 AD to 1600. Now what was the landmark there that started that in 1600? For approximately a thousand years, the Catholic church went full throttle in distorting what the Bible taught about Christ's church and the gospel message. The deforming of the gospel message, Lawson says, there was no one Lawson says there was not even one ounce of grace offered from the Catholic Church in all of that period of time. I mean, just think about this for a minute. There were no little Christian churches on any corner. None. Now, don't misunderstand this. That doesn't mean Christ isn't building his church. It just means that everybody was underground. There were pockets of Christians living for Christ and exalting Christ in their communities. But the Roman Catholic Church had dominated. The Roman Catholic Church was a machine and if you and in fact if you were trying to seek god and and as far as a religious person you'd get rate vacuumed into that system and there wasn't one ounce of grace being offered in the roman catholic church and so the reason why they go 16 or the reason why they go 600 a.d was the beginning of this thousand year reign by the roman catholic church was because it was when they they first ordained and installed a Pope was 600, 600 AD. That is when the first Pope was ordained and installed in the Roman Catholic Church. And so in Catholic dogma, the Pope is the successor of Peter. They, they say, and wrongly based on Matthew 16, 18, they misconstrue this and take it out of context. They say that Christ was telling Peter, you're the head of the church they've totally misinterpreted this this is part of the battle and so they say that the pope is now the successor of peter and um and in 16 in 600 600 a.d is when they when they officially ordained and installed the very first pope and so we see that martin luther once responded in regards to the pope's headship by saying we here are of conviction that the papacy is the seat of the true and real Antichrist. Personally, I declare I owe the Pope no other obedience than that to Antichrist. Now Luther did back his words up with scripture and he pointed to 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4, which just talks about the man of lawlessness needs to come. And in fact, Luther was saying, uh, Luther w- was saying, based on Second Thessalonians 2 verse four, he was saying, the, ana- the man of lawless, the man of lawlessness must come who opposes and exalt himself and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. I don't know if you're catching this. But what that verse is talking about is the man of lawlessness will come and he'll place himself in the seat of god that is an abomination and he'll place himself in the seat of god and take all the worship that is due to god and he will place it upon himself this is how martin luther looked at the pope he also used first john first john 2 18 and again john's warning the first century christian And Martin Luther is reflecting on John's writing. He called him General John. He's he's reflecting on General John's writing, children, in the last hour, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, and so now Antichrists have come. Remember, Martin Luther is contributing the Pope as the Antichrist, full throttle. Therefore, we know that this is the last hour. Now, just to put this in context right here, I'm telling you in 1517, Martin Luther nailed those 95 Theses to the cross, and he was non-saved. Within a year or two from that, Martin Luther becomes saved. In 1521, this is when the church has had it, the the Catholic Church. They call Martin Luther, they call him to the carpet, and they call him into a Supreme Council and tell him to recant. And we're going to get there. But I'm just telling you, when Martin Luther was writing these things about the, about the Pope being the Antichrist, this was 1518 and above. He'd become a Christian by now. And from 1521, when they called him to the carpet and wanted him to recant, and he said, and in fact, they showed him this table, and he had all these books, and he had all these things written about the scriptures and, and questions in Bible, questions in Bible. He had all these books written. In fact, one of them you can have in your hands today, The Bondage of the Will. They call it the, his magnus opus, the, the bondage of the will. Not hard reading, by the way. And he was writing this in response to Erasmus, who wrote the free will of man. Sound familiar in our day and age? We have this conflict going on, the free will of man, that was Erasmus. And Martin Luther stood up and said, it's the bondage of the will. No man can operate outside of Christ saving him. And so, you can see here, Martin Luther, he looked at the Pope as the Antichrist, but I wanted you to just see a little bit of context there and understanding, he, wrote the the- he he nailed the 95 thesis to the wall in October 31st, 1517, became a Christian shortly after that. They called him on the carpet, they wanted him to destroy all of his books and he said, those books are all about God. And all about the grace of God and the gospel message of Christ. If I burn those books, I I would be denying the the sufficiency and the supremacy of Scripture. I can't do it. And so there's a lot to be said about that day when Martin Luther did that in 1521. From that day, they excommunicated Martin Luther. And when you're excommunicated from the Catholic Church, remember, he was an Augustinian pope, uh, Augustinian monk, rather. He was a he was a, a monk from one of the strictest lines. I mean, there were seven sects of, seven sects of, um, of being a pope. Martin Luther chose the most difficult back in those days. But, but, but he was excommunicated in 1521, and what that meant was um, you're destined for hell. Purgatory is not even available to you. You can recant and repent now, but if you don't, you're excommunicated and you're on your way to hell. You can be assured of that according to the Roman Catholic Church and so he was looked at from 1521 as an outlaw and so as an outlaw Martin Luther so we see here the forming of the church in the first century and what we're talking about here is the deforming of the church and I'm just pointing out to you that the Roman Catholic dogma about the Pope being the authority I mean the deforming of the church continued continued for a thousand years martin luther he claims the pope to be the antichrist but let me just go on a little bit and tell you about the deforming of the church they twisted and they deformed the authority of scripture the roman catholic view of the authority concerning the interpretation of scripture is this no individual believer no 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 individual believer is permitted to interpret the scripture but the entire scripture interpretation is entirely upon the official interpretation of the of the church which comes by the pope and this means that every priest and everybody else must, must teach only the official catholic interpretation on any given text of the bible you cannot go outside the roman catholic and the catholic church view so there was this twisting of the authority of scripture there was twisting of services they were spoken in latin the low-born people were not permitted to even handle a Bible I believe it was Martin Luther who said he hadn't even seen a Bible until he was 20 years old this is a guy Martin Luther who came from means his father owned a copper mill Martin Luther's family had resources and so the low-born people were not even permitted to handle a Bible not even read the Bible services were spoken in Latin Praying to Mary, this is how they twisted and distorted and deformed. They prayed to Mary and the saints. When Martin Luther was unsaved in 1505, he cried out after almost being struck by lightning. He cried out to the, to the um, patron saint Anne for help. Uh, the, the patron saint Anne uh, was the patron saint for miners. Luther's father owned a copper mine. So worship was distorted. You know, back then they took the pulpit and they moved the pulpit to the side and they emphasized the altar. And when it came to emphasizing the altar, they came up with something that's called transubstantiation. And so you have the altar when you come into a Catholic church. And transubstantiation is basically when they would do communion like we do every Sunday morning. They would come in for mass or communion and they would come in there. And here's what they taught. As you walk into a Roman Catholic church, the altar is right there. And what is happening under transubstantiation is Christ is being recrucified, and his blood and his body are being broken. And their mystery, and they say this is literal, it becomes mystery it's a mystery that becomes literal and that is that christ his body his broken body and his blood actually become literal now if you want to believe that you can but it's foolish nowhere in scripture do you find transubstantiation first corinthians chapter 11 when we do communion we do it to remember the broken body of christ and has shed blood for our sins. Can you see the filth that is going on, the perversion, the twistedness, the deforming? And people lived under this for a thousand years. Can you understand the importance of the Reformation? I mean, you have the twisting of these church services. Worship was distorted. And so that's why in the Reformation... They started teaching biblical they put that pulpit right to the center i'm not going to get into francis chan some of you might know that current day name but he makes a big deal about moving the pulpit to the side he makes a big deal about moving the pulpit to the side and he goes back to catholicism and making this altar more available and he says it in the roman catholic church language i'm not going to keep going with that we're talking about the reformation and martin luther but I just want to give you a little seed there of Francis Chan. Super available information on him. So the church is twisting. They're deforming. They're perverting. It goes all the way down through all of these things. The emphasis was more on, on mass and communion than it was preaching. And that's because of their mystery where Christ becomes literal. And Christ then, this is heresy, where Christ has to be repeatedly, repeatedly sacrificed repeatedly sacrificed that's sacrilegious that's heresy jesus himself said it in john 19:30 as jesus as jesus hung on, hung on the cross for all of our sins john 19:30 you know what jesus says most of us remember this it is finished he literally died he literally was buried and now he sits at the right hand of god in her tone. Uh, atoning for uh, there as a mediator for us so a little bit there about the twisting let me just finish our time by saying the 1600s then was so so important why was why was the reformation so important the 1600 the 1600th century was so important because it was reforming Christ's church back to what it should have been and so as we're finishing up here, the Lord woke men. The Lord woke men up. The Lord woke men up to the inspiration and the authority of the Bible, and so Martin Luther was just in a line of many, but but God used him in a unique way, in his position. Um, Martin Luther didn't become a Christian until later in his life, which is interesting. Um, so Luther was 90. Uh, right, uh, he was. Um, Martin Luther's 95 thesis was all about having a scriptural debate regarding the practices of indulgences. It's important to understand the 16th Reformation. This was the match that God used to light the fuse to bring about the Reformation. Preaching God's word was being being restored and moved back into the center of worship. The pulpit would be um, the place where people gathered to hear God's word. They wanted to hear what God had to say. Tell us what God has to say. You know, when Martin Luther in 1521, when he was um, told to recant and he couldn't and then looked at as an outlaw, his friends actually came and kidnapped him and then brought him to what's called the castle. And they kidnapped him and kept him there for about nine months for his safety. And while he was there, in three months, Martin Luther translated the whole New Testament in Three months and it was amazing because from there remember Gutenberg's press was now just starting to pick up steam and it was a newly invented talk about the information highway here we have in the first century the Roman roads is said to be that information highway now you have the Gutenberg press which is said to be another information highway and so from 1521 when Martin Luther translated that that New Testament That Greek New Testament into the German language from 1521 until when he died in 1546, it's amazing. But 500,000 copies are said to have been pumped out into the society, amazing. These were all part of the Reformation movements. So men of faith were emerging. The Gutenberg Press, it was available to people. Uh, the universities were um were a new system the inv- the universities have been around for for many many hundreds of years but the the reformers the reformers put an emphasis on the lowborn people having that available to them Education's now available that was part of the reformation making universities available uh to the commoner and that had a great influence on society the bible would be available to the public it was john it was um um, it was uh, William, William, William Tyndale, who was an England reformer. So when you start to get into this, you're going to see, as Martin Luther's in Germany, you're going to see God's working over here in England with William Tyndale. And he's working in Geneva um, with Calvin. And there are different ages. So if you kind of get into the history part of it, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. But William, William Tyndale, um, he, he once said... Um, He once said the farm boy will be able to have more Bible knowledge than most most Catholic priests. Um, I'm paraphrasing, but he has a historical saying, but it was William Tyndale that wanted to just, in fact, he was a translator and actually was tore up and killed. And so as we conclude here, in fact, so the English reformer, William Tyndale, he speaks of the Roman Catholic Church and he once said, if God spare my life ere for many years, I will cause a boy who drives a plow to know more of Scripture than do all of you speaking to the Roman Catholic Church. So I think I did pretty good. We made, it, we, we made it section one here, the men of the Reformation, and why was the Reformation so important. So when we pick it up next week, we'll look at Martin Luther, the early years, and then here I stand, and um, we'll have a great time together. So I'm sorry I didn't leave any time for, um, for questions, but please come up afterwards and would love to talk to you about this if, you're, uh, if you have a question or comment. So what a rich, rich legacy we have, rich legacy. And I hope I've edified you. I hope, I've hope you've been stirred and stimulated a little bit to pick up those books that are close to you. Go to League Inner Ministry, pull up Steve Lawson, listen to some of these, um, you'll, be, you'll be enriched. So Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this time and we wanna honor you as we look at your invisible hand working out in history. We look at your providential, your sovereign hand. You, you know all things even before. And so we're grateful that you allow us to look back at history and learn from it and to see the importance of it. May we be your people who stand for you. It's you, Lord, and you alone who deserve our exaltation and our praise.